Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and Chuck's with me, and Jerry's here too. And that makes this Stuff You Should Know the last time we'll ever talk about boomers. (laughs) Yeah, I know this isn't your jam, uh, but a lot of this stuff is my jam, even though I'm not a boomer. Mm-hmm. I'm very much into a lot of this music. You're a boomer in spirit. Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> God, I want to cuss at you so bad right now. <laughs> oh, <man. clears throat> but um, I have been singing the Woodstock song in my head all day, which is a great song and one of those sort of rare, not that rare, but one of those things where the the cover versions are just as great. Yeah, it really is a like, good I song. I like all the versions. I mean, that's. It's, I don't think there's any song that's captured the essence of that generation in that era better than that song, aside from We Built This City on Rock and Roll. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, I, I don't know if many people understand that it is a, a song written by Joni Mitchell, not Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. She wasn't there either. David Geffen was her manager and said, nope, you can't go. You have to be on Dick Cavett on Tuesday, and I'm worried you won't make it back in time. Which is crazy. She would would have been amazing at the concert. But uh, they released that recorded version within a month of each other, which I never knew, um, just about six or seven months after or eight months after the concert. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was another version released also that same year from a British band called Matthews Southern Comfort. Oh boy, they really had some bad names back then. <laughs> and I just listened to it, and uh, boy, they really take all of the passion out of it in that version, and they skip, the, they just yeah. completely wholesale skip the coolest line, I think, in the song, uh-huh. which is, uh, they just say, we are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. They don't have that lyric in the middle, we are billion-year-old carbon, which is so hippy-dippy and amazing. Oh, I never noticed that. It's true, though. They're right. Joni Mitchell was right. They just skip it, and it's just very mellow and lame to to my ears. It's like shoegaze drone. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently, that was the biggest hit out of all of them, though, which I had never no way. Heard. Yeah, uh, maybe in England. I don't know. <clears throat> oh, okay. Thumbs down for me. Yeah, same here. I haven't even heard it, but it sounds sucky. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we are talking about Woodstock, and I think it's one of those things. I'm probably in the majority for our age group. I've heard of it. I've I've got images of the film in my head. Sure. I have a general. I could rattle off probably four or five people or bands that were there that played. That it rained and that. it was muddy and there yeah. was brown acid and all that stuff. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> the thing is, is when I was researching this, I was like, this really was like a, a really interesting event. Yeah. And it's not necessarily because it was just so culturally significant, although it turned out to be, or that it was just such a special, magical, cosmic moment, which I'm sure if you were there, there are a lot of people yeah. who, who believe that. But more that it was just an exercise in putting half a million people together <laughs> yeah. outdoors over three days, throwing as much drugs as you possibly can into the mix. Mm -hmm. And then just seeing what happened. And what happened was really impressive, was yeah. very peaceful. It basically was, worked. Like really communal. It mm -hmm. was a really, it was a cool thing. So out of all the... The stuff from the 60s that, like, all those oldsters are saying, like, hey, you know, the 60s, you had to be there right, kind of thing. Right, right, sure. This does seem to to have some chops in that respect. Like, it does seem to have been significant. Yeah, it was one of those moments in time, for sure. Um, and if you believe uh, Max Yasger, who uh, we'll talk about quite a bit here and there, he was, it was his farm, very yep. famously in Bethel, New York, that hosted this concert. But when he takes the stage and makes... Uh, and speaks to the crowd, which is a very fun thing to watch on YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, or if you watch the whole movie. He claims, and it might have been true at the time, that it was the largest grouping of human beings ever in history in one yeah. place up until I think, that point. I, I've seen that in places, too, that it, that's entirely possible, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I mean, between four and 500,000 people, thats you didn't get crowds like that back then. No. and I mean, I can't think of one... Since the, the, now, yeah. the thing that went to that sprung to mind was um I think Mecca gets pretty crowded on certain holy times. Okay. <laughs> it's sure. possible that like that's rivaled that before in the past. Um yeah. or even contemporarily, I don't know. But um yeah. We'll put Woodstock and Mecca together. How about that? Yeah, but even you're right though, when you think about the biggest like outdoor, you know, even, you know, there there are no, you know, outdoor uh, arenas that hold anything close to this. Right. But even when they say like, all right, we're going to take over this part of Central Park or whatever, or just this area, it it doesn't really like a, a couple of hundred to 300,000 people is like a huge, huge deal. So oh, this was, yeah. this is four to 500,000. I mean, the biggest, hugest college football stadiums in the United States maybe crack 100,000, and those things are just massive. Yeah. So imagine four or five of those filled yeah. to capacity all dumped into just one of them. That's yeah. just amazing. On acid. <laughs> On acid, yeah. Pretty neat. So, yeah, let's start talking about this because there is a pretty cool story. I say we, we start at the beginning. How about that? Okay. And then pepper in some, some stuff because Ed helped us with this one, and um, he really laid a bunch out in his intro, and I, th I think we should kind of salt and pepper it in instead. All right. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Okay, cool. Well, let's give it a <laughs> shot. Uh, we do this on the fly, everyone. After all these years, we still do it the same way, just so you know. We like to go, surprise! <laughs> uh, so Woodstock, and this is something Ed posed, was um, why, you know, we we're talking about the four to 500,000 people. Why, what made it special? Why were that many people? Mm -hmm. And one of the first kind of boring reasons is just the mere fact of where it was. It was in Bethel, New York, and mm -hmm. that was within a six to seven to eight hour drive of New York City, Philly, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, D.C., Buffalo, Boston, like within three or four hours of a lot of those. So mm -hmm. it was just it was located in a place where and it was held over the course, you know, as you'll see, supposed to be three tight days, but 
it veered into the morning of the 4th. But, you know, once word gets out that there's this free show happening, uh, you could miss Friday and show up halfway there on a Saturday and still see a lot of the performers, you know? Yeah, and I don't think you would have missed a whole lot missing Friday, frankly. Hey, Richie Havens. Okay, oh, that's it. I'll give an you that amazing one. performance. For sure, I agree. I said miss much. I didn't okay. say miss nothing. All right, all right. So, um, yeah, that was a big a big part of it. And it, it was in Bethel. It wasn't in Woodstock. Woodstock is like 60 miles away from Bethel. But the reason that they named it Woodstock and hung on to that name for everything they had was because uh, Bob Dylan had put this the town of Woodstock on the map when he moved there. It was like his little hideaway mountain, I guess, retreat um, in the 60s. And it just kind of became like a cool countercultural town. So the name itself, Woodstock, like meant a lot to the people who actually went to the Woodstock Festival in 1969. Yeah. And it, it, before people start screaming at you and me especially, uh, it was famously where the band lived. Um, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, group from that era. Mm-hmm. And this is where Dylan and the band recorded the basement tapes mm-hmm. outside of or in the basement of Big Pink, the house that they rented. Mm-hmm. And uh, I finally made my my trip to Woodstock uh, last year for a show at, at Levon's Barn, which I might have mentioned at some point in uh, one of our episodes. But that town is still holding on to that and not in a bad way. It still like embodies, oh, sure. I should say, that feeling in that artsy community and it's just it's this magical place i went in the dead of winter and there was hardly anyone there and me and uh my buddy justin who you know just just like walked around woodstock a lot of the stuff was closed in the winter Mm -hmm. but it just had this feeling there uh that is undeniable um around woodstock and bethel and uh, Socrates, where our buddy Joe Garden lives, by the way. I don't know if you oh, knew Oh, I didn't know that. Shout out Joe Garden. Yeah, we went over to Joe's house. He's It's all right there together. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay, so there's where the name comes from, even though the whole thing wasn't held in, in Woodstock. Um, and it was already kind of following in a tradition that was fairly new at the time. Like, we think of music festivals, you're like, you, you can, like any day of the week, you can find a music festival somewhere yeah. in the United States, right? Yeah, for sure. It was actually still pretty new when Woodstock was held. Um, the jazz festivals of the 50s and really starting the early 60s were the ones that established festivals, right? Yeah. <clears throat> because everybody knows even the greatest jazz performers can't draw a huge crowd, so you have to put a bunch of them together, hence jazz festivals, right? Yeah, yeah. They were sort of the foundation, and uh, I think— the big, the big one that kind of put these kind of festivals on the map. The first one was uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, right, in '67, um, and I would argue that it sort of went away after the Altamont uh, debacle with the the murder at the Rolling Stones concert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think kind of, I'd have to look it up. I'm sure there were some festivals here and there, but I think Perry Farrell and Lollapalooza brought it back. I think it was down for a couple of decades. You're absolutely right. I can't think of anything in between that was significant. There might have been something, but definitely uh, like Lollapalooza is what really kickstarted the modern era of the festival. And like you said, now they're they are just all over the place all the time. Yeah. And I should say there were plenty of like jazz festivals. There was New Orleans Jazz Fest kept going on. Didn't really care about Perry Farrell and his aspirations. (laughs) Um, But yes, for pop culture, it was definitely Lollapalooza. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I'm glad you said that about Jazz Fest. I would have gotten <laughs> yeah. smoked in the emails. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the festival craze was like 
at peak, the first wave of it, I should say, when Woodstock came, which was another thing that kind of helped make it such a legendary thing. And the whole thing was founded by two guys, Artie Cornfield and Michael Lang. Two guys put on Woodstock, and they did it with the backing of two um, uh, two kids, one of which came from a very, very wealthy family, a pharmaceutical dynasty, uh, John Roberts, yeah. and his friend Joel Rosenman. They bankrolled this thing. And they actually were looking for interesting countercultural investments, so much so that they actually advertised in the New York Times that they had a bunch of money and they were looking for interesting <laughs> investments. And wow. uh, yeah, it turned out Artie Cornfield, Michael Lang already knew Roberts and Rosenman, uh, and they had built like a recording studio together. And that kind of gave blossom to this whole Woodstock idea. Initially, it was going to be a one-night benefit concert in yeah. Woodstock with Dylan as the headliner. That's Bob Dylan, for those of you who aren't in the know like me. <laughs> right. Um, and it was going to pay for a music studio that they were going to build in Woodstock. That was the first idea of Woodstock. And then all of a sudden, they're like, well, who else can we have? And who else can we have? And all of a sudden, the music festival became way more important than the music studio that it was originally intended to help build. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, once they had this idea, they started searching around for a place and they tried Woodstock, uh, I think probably first, because like you said, the cultural significance. And then they moved on to Joe Garden's house in Saugerties. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Joe's Joe Garden said, get off my lawn. And they're <laughs> like, all right, not this place, I guess. Wasn't quite big enough. Uh, although Joe's house is great. It's like a little museum, as oh, you yeah. can imagine. I've seen pictures. Uh, and then Wallkill, which is nearby as well. And they all, you know, smartly were like, no, like, we can't host something this big. Have you ever been out here? It is, you're out in the middle of farmland and forest, and we can't hold a rock concert here. Yeah. And this is when a gentleman named Max Yasger, who uh, was um, portrayed by Eugene uh, Levy in the movie, uh, what was the movie? Was it? Oh, you're you're serious? Oh yeah, yeah. It oh, was. Okay. I thought you were gonna say he portrayed him in the documentary. <laughs> no, not Finding Woodstock, but something Woodstock or uh, Woodstock I Ahoy. I think that was the name of it. But when you look at Max Yasger, he looks a lot like Eugene Levy, so it was great casting. Uh, but he, you know, was a guy that uh, was a farmer, and I think like a dairy farmer had about six to seven hundred head of cattle, mm -hmm. and was the largest dairy farmer in the county. And he was not some hippie sympathizer. He, by all accounts, was kind of the opposite of that, uh, was what you might think he would be as a, as a farmer in upstate New York, which is very straight-laced, mm -hmm. very Republican. But apparently, he also kind of liked to thumb his nose at the man a little bit. And when the locals started hemming and hawing about having a concert in Bethel, he was like, screw you guys, you can have it at my farm. Right. He was back in the 2000 aughts, what you would have called the libertarian. Yeah, probably so. So he also was one of those people, I get the impression, he knew Spunk when he saw it and he liked it. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. So he really took a shine to Cornfeld and Lang. I think I've been calling him Cornfield. That's okay. I don't know if you noticed or not. <laughs> um, but I meant Cornfeld and Lang. And so he helped them get this push through because they were, like you said, turned down at town after town after town in the area. And so Yasger finally kind of got uh, Bethel to 
to, well, at least with his support, Bethel was a little more accommodating, a little more allowable. But the way that these guys got this incredibly huge music festival pushed through, city councils got permits and all that stuff, was by lying, lying, lying. Yeah. <laughs> they agreed to anything that the, the city councils asked for, including um, they agreed to hire 150 off-duty police officers. I don't think they ended up hiring one. Um, they said that they expected 50,000. They expected actually 200,000. The 400 to 500,000 caught even them by surprise. Yeah. But they were still expecting about four times more than they told the Bethel City Council they were. And um, they just basically said whatever they wanted to, whatever they thought they wanted to hear. And finally, like like you said, with the Asgers' help, they got it. They got it pushed through, and they had a home. The problem is they had a home now for this festival just five weeks before the advertised date. That's right, and I think it's a great uh, cliffhanger. So we'll come back in a moment and see if the Woodstock concert even happened. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. If you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. (laughs) 
Well, right. did it did it go down? I don't know. You tell me. Did they fake that concert uh, film like the moon landing? Let's ask Eugene Levy. Uh, no, the the concert went down, uh, and like you said, they only had five weeks, and that presents a lot of problems logistically. Obviously, uh, even though they weren't setting up like um, chairs and things like that, it was like there's a lot of. <laughs> You know, people might say, just build a stage out in the middle of the field and it's taken care of. But there's so much more that goes into something like this, like food and water and bathrooms and, and, you know, medical infrastructure and stuff like that. Plus, I mean, if you see the footage from the documentary, there were legit, like, lighting rigs and sound rigs. Oh, yeah. Like, it wasn't just some, like, a bunch of plywood and two-by-fours that they put up. Like, it was a legit, like, concert venue that they made out of nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was was a money-making venture. I mean, these guys were were sort of hippy-dippy music fans, but they were out to make a buck. Uh, I think the original price was 6 bucks for a ticket, uh, 18 for the weekend, which mm-hmm. they didn't even give them a break on a weekend pass. It should have been 15 for all three yeah, days. Yeah, really? Personally. Um, and there were a lot of, like, they booked a lot of big acts, but a lot of big acts at the time, um, like Woodstock is kind of famous sometimes for who didn't play. Mm-hmm. Um, the Beatles uh, very famously did not play Woodstock. Uh, Led Zeppelin is mentioned in this article, but... I would argue they, I mean, their first album was only four or five months old at this point. Zeppelin? Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it was a a big record, but they were trying to book like these whales, you know. Right. Um, The Doors didn't play. Dylan didn't play. uh, But they were able to book as the headliners, um, generally speaking, even though the times were pushed because everything was late. So like (laughs) the headliners ended up playing sometimes at like five in the morning Mm -hmm. or like with Jimi Hendrix you know, after the sun came up on the Monday. <laughs> yeah. uh, but The Who and Jefferson Airplane and Hendrix are generally sort of thought of as the, as the biggest names there. Yeah, at the time. And the thing is, is like when you look back at Woodstock's lineup, you're like, man, it was just huge act after huge act. The reason why it seems that way now is because of Woodstock. Like a lot of these um, yeah. performers were not huge at the time, but they became huge. Even The Who, um, they credit the the Woodstock performance for giving them a like a huge boost, basically taking them from rock stars to rock superstars, like arena rock stars, basically, yeah. um, in just a few months. So it's it's easy to kind of take for granted that all of these were big acts, but they definitely weren't. And a lot of them got paid relatively peanuts, you know? Like there were a lot of bands that took $5,000 or less to play at Woodstock. And at the time, they didn't when they agreed, they had no idea that it was going to be this thing. It just turned out to be a really good move for all of them. Yeah, it was Santana's first, I don't know if it was their first ever performance, but it was their first big show, like, before their album was even out. And I think they were included because uh, legendary rock promoter Bill Graham said, hey, if you want uh, The Grateful Dead, if you want Credence, who, uh, I watched a documentary on Credence not too long ago. They were the biggest band in the world the day after the Beatles broke up. Oh, really? Like, they were number two. And then the Beatles broke up, and I was like, really, Credence? Like, I like Credence, but but then you go, when you see the story, like, they were huge, and they had, like, 20 hits, you know? They they were a big, big band. So, anyway. Well, hold on, hold on. Before you move on, I had a similar experience. I saw, uh, like, I think Lifetime or somebody produced, Uh like, a three- or four-part Janet Jackson documentary that's really good. Oh, yeah? And, like, it gets across, she's, if she wasn't one of the Jacksons, she would be bigger than, like, Madonna and Celine Dion rolled together. Like, for that era, she was 
enormous. Yeah. And yet, that's how big a shadow her brother cast. Right. Um, that she, no matter how huge she was, she was, you know, Michael Michael's Jackson's sister. little sister. Yeah. Yeah. That's but so it's funny. nuts, like the number of hits she had. And she's just he, like way bigger than I realized. And I'm, I mean, everybody knows Janet Jackson, but I just had no idea like the success that she actually did have. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I like Janet it's, Jackson. It's good. It's definitely worth watching. It, it moves pretty fast, too. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't drag? No. <laughs> not a lot of filler. Um, so, yeah, what was I saying? CCR and, and uh, Bill Graham said, if you want CCR, you want the dead, then you got to take this new band that I'm um, uh, in, uh, representing called Santana mm -hmm. and a very young Carlos Santana. Um, not Neil Sean from Journey yet. He was uh, he joined Santana as a 15-year-old. <laughs> Right after the Woodstock performance. Wow. Uh, but because I was curious, I was like, did Neil Sean actually play at Woodstock? Because I knew he was a teenager. Hey, I guess uh, he's a founding member of Journey, you're saying? Well, yeah. Neil Sean from Journey uh, okay. was first in Santana as a 15-year-old. I did not know that. I, yeah, well, as, actually, to tell you the truth, I didn't know who Neil Sean was until right. <laughs> a minute or less ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm a little... Uh, For Clemson? No, nah, I've just got a little uh, chest congestion. So yeah, same here. Is it the allergies, allergies getting you? It is. I've been. Yeah. Uh, I haven't felt bad at all. But anyway. Oh, good. Uh, so yeah, Neil Sean, founding member of Journey, was in Santana as a 15 year old alongside Greg Rowley. Uh, also, uh, he was Journey's first piano player and singer before Steve Barry. I had no idea that there was such a deep Santana Journey connection. I know. How about that? Pretty cool. Uh, all right, so back to the timeline. Uh, they are, or I should have said back to the garden. Um, <laughs> they have about five weeks to pull this thing together, and they had to make some tough choices, like when the construction supervisor comes up and says, you got a choice. We can finish the stage, or we can build fencing uh, and make sure these tickets get sold and people don't get in. And I think the writing was on the wall. A, they definitely said, all right, well, we've got to have a stage, of course, like a completed stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, like, there's already kids camping out here while you're building the stage. Like, this thing is, they, they knew what was coming, I think. They definitely to, did. To a certain degree. But, but Ed makes a pretty good point that must have dawned on them. There's no point in putting up really good fencing for a venue that doesn't have a stage, right? So they really had no choice whatsoever. They still tried to put up some fencing because, like you said, it's a money-making venture. But it was just so totally inadequate that when they looked over, so this is like midweek when when the um, the construction supervisor comes over and says, "Do you want fences or a stage?" Um, and there's already, from what I saw in some places, fifty thousand people camped out in the area where they're building the stage already. Yeah, this is what they told was Bethel <laughs> was the total. And this yeah. is Wednesday, and there's already 50,000 people camped out for the show that starts on Friday. Yeah, they had nowhere to be. So those guys, very, very, very wisely, Kornfeld and Lang, um, they very wisely said, there's nothing we can do. We're just going to announce that this is a free concert from now on. And that did a few things. It, it just turned this into like a, a – uh, if it wasn't a hippie fest before, it, it's just totally now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Because it's a free concert featuring some of the some really huge acts, and then secondly, um, I think by not putting up really good fences, uh -huh. they prevented um, gate crashing, like actual real gate crashing, which I think would have cast a really different vibe over yeah. the whole festival. Because if you enter a festival, if the first thing you do when you come into a festival is break the law or steal, essentially you're stealing the ticket right. price. Yeah. 
that just kind of puts a spin on your experience from that moment on. No one really had that experience at, at Woodstock because the guys said, fine, it's it's free. And it prevented that. And I think that that helped really lay the groundwork for the, the vibe that, that was, you know, um, that grew at the at that festival. Yeah, you can't complain about inadequate water and food supplies when you have crashed a free concert. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> Although people would do that today, but they didn't back then. For sure. So um, af- after they announced it, though, Chuck, they were like, it, it went from like a pretty big concert. Remember, they were expecting a couple hundred thousand, which is huge, to at least double that. Um, because word spread really quickly, and people just started coming from all of those cities within a seven-hour drive, and people were driving there. That's really the only way to get there, aside from a helicopter. And very few hippies at the time had helicopters yeah, just that few. they could fly themselves. <laughs> so everybody was driving their car, probably 10 hippies to a car, and those cars started to pile up, uh, not like on top of one another, but right around one another. And people mm-hmm. just started realizing, like, we're not going to go any further. This is the this is the where the the line to get in begins is where our car is now. So everybody just left their cars and started walking miles in some cases to the um, the farm to where the stage was. And that they were like, oh, we'll come get our car in a couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. That's the right thing to do. They could hear Richie Havens in the distance. Mm-hmm. They're like, screw this. Mm-hmm. I'm walking. Yeah. Uh, they ran out of by the time Saturday rolls around, they had run out of food. Uh, they had run out of medical supplies. Um, the whole, you know, all the towns around really chipped in. Uh, the National Guard, the U.S. Army, people donated food. They donated eggs and water, and Max Yasger donated milk and yogurt. Mm-hmm. And the local townspeople made sandwiches to send along. And 10,000 of them. Yeah, like everyone really chipped in to uh, to make sure that something bad didn't happen. And to their credit, like, nothing really bad did happen. No, I mean, can you imagine half a million people all getting hangry at the same time? <laughs> that that would be bad. And there was another group that chipped in, too, the hog oh, farm. Here comes your buddy. I'm so excited. <laughs> so the hog farm was a hippie commune. I don't remember what um, state it was in. I think maybe Arizona. <clears throat> but they um, had established themselves as really great at providing security and services at music festivals, hippie music festivals. And one of the reasons why they were so good at it was because they were led by none other than possibly the greatest hippie of all time, Wavy (laughs) Gravy. That was his group, was the hog farm. And I got to tell you, I did not see him coming. And when I saw him, I was Uh, like, awesome. And I have even more love for him now. I just liked him before because of his name. But it turns out he was a pretty awesome dude. Oh, he was great. Yeah, so the, the hog farm, when they were providing security services at festivals, they called themselves the police force. And I think it has a kind of a double meaning, like they're pleasing the people that they're having to deal with. But at the same time, they were exceedingly polite. Their method, when there was a problem or there was static or something like that, they would intervene, but they wouldn't physically intervene. They would just kind of come up and be like, hey, let's move on over this way. And yes. um, they were very polite and in, in, in breaking up problems, preventing like um, contagions from spreading throughout the crowd by just completely um, uh, de-escalating whatever whatever was going on, whether it was maybe a fight that was about to break out to somebody who was on a, a bad trip because they took too much brown acid. Yeah, and there was a there was a sort of um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back um, ethos to the whole thing. So mm-hmm. if you 
had a, were having a bad trip and someone helped you out uh, from the hog farm and talked you through this experience, then they were like, all right, now you go help someone out. Um, or if we helped feed you, why don't you help feed and like kind of take a shift? Mm-hmm. And so the crowd, you know, responded in kind. And that's what kept it. Um, I think Ed says like not a single fight broke out. I'm sure that probably wasn't true, but there's some it, people who swear that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> maybe I'm cynical, but I, I don't know. Five hundred thousand no, I mean, people, you can't I'm have your you. eyeballs on everything all at once. No, for sure, I'm with you. But um, it's one of those. That's a part of the myth that I'm happy to just keep going. Okay, not you not know? a single fight broke out. Not one. It's documented fact. Uh, and you mentioned the brown acid. That was uh, a very sort of legendary announcement made by um, a guy, believe it or not, whose name was his real name was Chipmunk. Well, that um, was his nickname was Chip. Well, I know, but that was his name. Like, well, that's what people is... call him. Sure. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it wasn't like his his name was Chipmunk. I'm not saying his parents named him that, but do you know his real name? I think it was Edward, but his really? last name was M O N C K, and people just called him Chip. I'm yeah. pretty sure he had four names, and I'm pretty sure the first one was Edward. Edward Monk. Mm-hmm. Which is way way less cool than Chipmunk. Uh, like I said, his name was Chipmunk, which is very fun, mm-hmm. uh, despite you trying to kill that fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he was the de facto MC. He was the lighting designer. He ended up winning, like, Tony Awards and stuff. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, came up with the lighting system, and uh, one of the, I'm not sure which of the uh, co-producers um, said it, but one of them said, hey, we don't have anyone to do this job. So you're going to MC this thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. So throughout the Woodstock documentary, um, which was released in March of 1970 from director Michael Wadley, a uh, great, great documentary. It won the Academy Award. Uh, there are many announcements from Chipmunk that are very, he just had this sort of uh, <clears throat> droll, like he wasn't a professional MC. Mm-hmm. He wasn't like, ladies, he wasn't Michael Buffer out there. <laughs> uh, but his very famous don't take the brown acid announcement is really funny. Uh, you know, he said, take it with take it with however many grains of salt you wish. <laughs> but uh, we suggest that you stay away from that. Uh, the brown acid, of course, it's your own trip. So be my guest. But please be advised. There is a warning on that one. Yeah. And like that, that definitely helped set the tone too. Like everything was calm, including when he was like, there's a lightning storm coming and we're all in the middle of a field. Um, so if you're on one of those lightning rigs watching the show, please come down kind of thing. Uh, or we're out of food. There was a lot of stuff that really could have gone differently if he hadn't been the, the cool dude that he was, very calm and collected, which is that it's just another little fortuitous thing, yeah. you know, that. That just happened. That everything kind of came together. There's one other thing I wanted to mention. You said everybody's kind of coming together and you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. There was a ton of volunteerism there where a lot of the people who were uh, attending it also ended up volunteering for all sorts of different stuff. And one of the things that was really important was they had planned the medical staff to cover 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. And they now had double that. And, like, the guy who was, like, the, the chief physician uh, for, for the whole thing was really worried. Um, and so as word kind of spread that, like, they didn't have that many people to, to take care of everyone um, and the roads were impassable, so the best you could hope for was a, an airlift via helicopter, um, people who were MDs and RNs who were there to see the show ended up coming and volunteering yeah. with, with the medical staff. And just to pitch in, it was just that kind of 
that kind of spirit. I just love those little stories, and there's a million of them in this uh, in this um, around this festival. How about that? At this concert, sure. Uh, you mentioned the rainstorm. The rain came through Sunday, and uh, it did thin the crowd a little bit. A lot of people by that point were like, "All right, this is sort of the the last straw. We've had our fun. Uh, we saw Richie Havens. We saw Shanana." Uh, I would have loved to see Sean. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But maybe we should go home. So the crowd thinned a little bit, but a lot of people stayed. And that's when, you know, if you've seen the famous footage of of naked hippies taking mud baths, Mm -hmm. uh, that was from Sunday on. And a lot of them stayed. And that that acid was still going strong. And who needs clothes at that point, right? I can imagine. Sure. Square. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, that was a big deal, too. But they just kind of ran with that, with the, the rain and everything. But a- as all this going on, there's food that they've run out of and that's now being trucked in. 797 bad trips that were bad enough to go seek attention at the medical That's tent. all? Yeah, a- astoundingly. And only, I think, 30. I read a Journal of Emergency <laughs> Medical Services uh, article that I found linked to from a grunge article on, on Woodstock. And um, it was basically a, a rundown of that. And they said 797, and only, I think, 20 or 30 of them couldn't be talked down and had to be injected with Valium. Uh, that was, their, that was the, final, the final countdown. Was they would, if you just wouldn't stop raving about how nuts you were right then, they would right. shoot you up with Valium. Interesting. Yeah. So um, while, nice. <laughs> right, while all this is going on, everybody's like having just a great time. There's plenty of bands playing. We haven't really talked too much about the bands. Um, there were a ton of people that played, everybody from Janis Joplin to Jimi Hendrix to um, Melanie. Never heard of her before, but she was one of the folk singers that played on Friday. Um, There's just a ton of different people. Um, she did that song in uh, Boogie Nights that you uh, probably which heard. One? Boogie Nights? No, the one, uh, I got a brand new pair of roller skates. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. That's a I great I think that song. was Melanie, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, love Melanie. <laughs> I love that song, at least. Sure. But there's just a bunch of different people. And, I'll, you know, I don't want to say all of them did really well. That's just not true. Some of them did terribly. Uh, and some of them turned in some, you know, f- good enough performances. But some had, like, some real breakout performances, too. Yeah, I mean, Richie Havens was one of them. He opened the show. Uh, if you've never seen Richie Havens before or heard him, just go watch the Woodstock performance. It is a um, it is a lesson in, like, soulful performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he I, I don't think, was supposed to open the show, but he was the only one there, yeah. <laughs> and they didn't have other people to follow him, so they just said, keep playing. Um, in his memory, he played for, like, over two hours, but I think it was really about an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he, he kind of set a tone, and it, again, like you said, this just serendipitous experience one after the other. I think Richie Havens opening that show really. I don't know who was supposed to open. I don't. I never saw either. I just saw that Curious. he was not expecting to, and they're like, "You're literally the only performer here. Can you please open the show?" So yeah, he did what he could, and he just kept playing until somebody else showed up. I'm not sure who came on after him, but he uh, he really yeah he. He he put that first tent peg in, and it was a yeah. it was a doozy. Uh, Joan Baez was another. Um, they made a a conscious choice as uh, organizers of the event to not, and it was of course it was going to be political with the hippie contingent and Vietnam mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. But they didn't invite politicians to speak or have a political tent set up 
uh, which is something that you would have at like a lot of these festivals. Yes. But Joan Baez, of course, is going to bring bring the uh, the awareness no matter where she she just she oozes awareness everywhere she goes. Right. So did Richie Havens, too, for sure. I think probably almost everybody on Friday was had some sort of anti-war, anti-draft message going, you know? Yeah, a lot of folky stuff on Friday. Um, like you said, Santana, um, this wasn't his first show, obviously, but this was this this show came out before his first album ever was released, right? Yeah. And uh, he uh, he says that he took some mescaline that Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead had given him. Because, it was acid, yeah. Was it acid? I've seen, yeah. I've seen both for sure. I watched the interview with him today. Oh, he and, said acid? Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and that makes a little more sense too. But anyway, Jerry Garcia dosed Carlos Santana with Carlos Santana's uh, willingness um, before the show because Santana thought he had like plenty of hours before he needed to go on. So he's like, sure, I'll just trip first and then go on afterward. And just like uh, everyone else at Woodstock, he was shoved out on stage long before he had planned to go out there. Or else everyone else went on way after the time that they had planned to yeah, go the, out there. Yeah, the schedule just went out the window. Exactly. So he ended up going um, and playing his show while he was peaking, um, and he turned into really great performance. It was great. I mean, he, you know, you can see interviews with him, like of, of old Carlos Santana talking about his experience and mm-hmm. uh, talking about how the neck was like moving in his, in his hands like a snake and... Mm-hmm. He just he said, I kept saying to myself, like, slow down, man, slow down. Mm-hmm. And but then he's like, or am I playing, you know, the perfect speed? And you could see the rest of the and I think the rest of the group was on acid, too. And they were just they were crushing it. It was amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Who's the I picture? Think, Doc. Uh, who's oh Doc Ellis? Doc Ellis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who did not crush it, um, according to their fans. And this is who knows? I'm sure there's some dead fans that love this performance, but. I think it's widely known within the Dead community that the uh, Woodstock performance by the Grateful Dead was not their best. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know what that means. Oh, oh, it was, <laughs> it was like for the Grateful Dead, it was terribly it was loose. loose. <laughs> they played a fifty-minute version of Love Light. Oh, good lord! Love Light is such a terrible song anyway, and and one of the big problems with the Grateful Dead is that they always extended that stupid song way too long. <laughs> A 50-minute version of Love Light, right? I don't know about any of this, so. There's um, there's 10. I, I beseech you to go just listen to a regular Love Light and then imagine 50 minutes of it. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, and apparently there's 10 minutes of them just basically standing around talking uh, in the middle of that 50-minute Love Light. It was just really, it was bad. It was not a good, good performance. And in their defense, um, there a, a rainstorm had just blown through, and the stage was... Hot, electrically speaking. And yeah, they kept that getting may have shocked. been why. Yeah. yeah, that was part of it. I don't think that was all of it. Right. <laughs> so I think what I'm reading for you is what could have been a 90-second fix ended up being 10 minutes. Ba- basically, yeah. And, and I think that I, I have the impression that they like the, they were playing Love Light still while they were standing around talking to one another, too. I just it couldn't was, stop. Yeah. And I saw the set list, and it looked like it had, it had the—, the um, it was possible it could have been something really great, but I get the impression that they just weren't weren't in the right mindset right then. I always forget that you you had a little dead spell. Yeah. A little. <laughs> uh, 
You, I mean, you never like followed them around or anything like that, did you? No, they were gone. I remember I had a chance to see their last show at the Omni. One of my friends had just gotten into him. It was like, dude, you got to go. Come on, let's go. And uh, I was like, I'll just catch him next time. That was uh-huh. a famous thing of mine. They did that with Stevie Ray Vaughan, <laughs> Pink oh, no. Floyd, um, a lot wow. of people. Yeah, I was just like, I'll just catch him next time. So I've learned now to just be like, okay, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> That's why you, you will travel to go see Air Supply. Man, that shit was so not good. Gonna, not going to take that chance. No way. <laughs> they might run out of air. <laughs> no, they have a full supply. Oh, okay. Um, so the Dead's performance is supposedly not so great. No. Uh, CCR did play and apparently is a really good set. But John Fogarty, he's a pretty cranky guy, or at least was back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he kept shouting out that they were the second biggest band in the world. No one believed him. <laughs> Everyone said, CCR, really? All right. Uh-huh. Uh, and he would not um, release, um, or he wouldn't sign the the release to um, make it into the Woodstock film, and, and the Dead was not in the Woodstock film. I don't think either, right? No, the the lighting was not good for some reason. I guess because of the um, the lightning and and rain that had just blown through. I'm not sure why, but yeah, I saw that it was so bad that they couldn't use the footage. Yeah, so a lot of people who are familiar with Woodstock through the film may be surprised that. CCR and the Grateful Dead performed, or uh, Cranky Neil Young, who um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young very famously played their second <laughs> ever show together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd played one show the night before in Chicago, and this was show number two. And Neil Young didn't want to sign the release for the film, so I guess they just cut around him. Yeah, would be my guess. I have a a, a little brief um, dead anecdote from recently, actually. Ooh. If you want to hear it, should we take a break and hear it right after? No, I think it's a pre-break. Okay. All right, let's hear it. Um, So I uh, actually downloaded a Dick's Picks, like where it's a live show that I think one of their soundboard guys like picks over the years. and was like, this one's so good, we're going to release it as an album. Okay. So anyway, I downloaded it from iTunes. And um, I I went to go listen to it and I was about to press play. And I was like, I don't really want to listen to The Grateful Dead again. But I do want my money back. So I went to the whole trouble of contacting Apple to ask for a refund on it. And it said, why? And I I really wanted to make sure that they gave me my money back. So I said, my friend told me this is a drug band, and I don't want to hear that. Oh, my God. And uh, they gave me my money back. What year was this? Like this year or 2022. Are you serious? Yeah, it was just a few months ago. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. I'm sorry I let you know that they're a drug band. I'm sorry I ruined that for you. <laughs> now uh, we can take a break. How all about right. That? Boy, that was great. I'm going to ruminate on that. We'll we'll be right back. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. 
Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. If you're building a deck at work and you want to supercharge it, check out Canva presentations. Work docs have been the same for too long, but Canva docs are different. They're visual. They grab readers' attention with images, charts, tables, and videos playable right in the doc. Plus, docs don't have to be just words on a page. You can make your docs pop with Canva docs. That's right. And Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, HR, ops, marketing, and more, Canva presentations can be the solution for you. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Canva presentations might be the most visually impressive presentations you'll ever use. Start with a stunning template, use it as a springboard for your design, adding images, graphics, charts, data visualizations, all from a massive media library. It's super easy to wow any audience with Canva presentations. So start designing today at canva.com, designed for work. That's C-A-N-V-A dot com. Uh, we should mention the Who probably. Um, they were one of the uh, bigger bands, but like you said, this vaulted them from theaters to arenas uh, after that movie came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Who were kind of cranky there because there was no green room. They were used to better treatment. The monitors were were crap, apparently, even though supposedly uh, the sound system as designed by a man named Bill Hanley was, was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the onstage monitors weren't good, so what Roger Daltrey couldn't hear himself, and he feels like he was off key, and so they were just like not having it. Um, I think Keith Moon and John Entwistle purposefully took LSD mm-hmm. in a station wagon with some girls, but Daltrey and Townsend accidentally took LSD. Uh, Townsend from coffee and uh, mm-hmm. Roger Daltrey from some tea that was spiked. Right. So by the time they got up there, they were not happy. They were pushed to like a five a.m. slot. And uh, when Abby Hoffman jumps up on stage to, you know, God bless Abby Hoffman, but admittedly, it was quite a buzzkill mm-hmm. when you hear the audio from this to interrupt a Who show mm-hmm. to talk about freeing uh, his friend and activist John Sinclair uh, for cannabis possession. Pete Townsend wasn't having it, and he, he moved him forcibly out of the way with his uh, guitar, very yeah. famously. Yeah, supposedly injured Abby Hoffman, but Roger Daltrey's like, no, that didn't happen, and so did Pete Townsend. But I loved it. They were surly, yeah, kind of, which which is not how most of the other bands were. But I can't really blame them. You said that there was no green room and they had to wait backstage. 
I read that they had to wait backstage for 14 hours. Yeah, it was a drag. Anybody would be surly at that point, you know? But they had a really cool thing that happened just kind of serendipitously. Um, their set got pushed so far back that they were playing the end of it as the sun was rising. And it's really neat in the documentary to yeah, see that. You know? that's true. Yeah, so they, they lucked out. Uh, I mentioned Sha Na Na. Yeah. <laughs> it's, if you've ever seen that Woodstock movie, one of the great performances is from the 50s throwback doo-wop group uh, that became famous for their TV show in the 70s. But you would think it would be antithetical to these hippy-dippy late 60s kids out there. Mm -hmm. But it was that perfect, like, nostalgia bomb for them. Like, this is the music they either heard when they were kids or their parents' music. And they it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, Shana and I was like, they were a, a club act. And they ended up becoming like Shanana because of that Woodstock appearance. But you said that it was nostalgic. Um, I guess the uh, Kornfeld and Lang um, tried to get Roy Rogers to sign on. To, what? To, yeah, he was gonna wow. do. He was gonna be the last act and just play Happy Trails oh, that's to end fun. the whole thing. And Roy Rogers was like, "I'm not doing that. Get off my lawn." So he got Van Halen to sing Happy Trails. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot they sang that. David Lee Roth is cool. <laughs> That's the pull quote. Can we make that our little Instagram thing? Sure. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Jimi Hendrix. We would be remiss not to mention the Monday morning, uh, most people are gone performance by the Band of Gypsies. Like, not just Monday morning, Chuck. Monday morning commute time. Yeah. Like, the last time for an acid-fueled rock concert. Yeah. And that then that's where you get the very famous Star Spangled Banner performance. And the reason why he played that is because it was in his contract that he performed last and that all those delays just bumped him to Monday morning. And yeah. what's cool is so many people had cleared out that if you see pictures of him playing, I'm not sure if it's in the documentary or not, people are just hanging around like the stage. Like fans are just right, like hanging on the speakers and sitting around watching him like that closely. It just became that loose. Yeah, it was sort of the effect of like, I don't know if you've ever worked in restaurants, but when you put on your music after mm -hmm. the restaurant is closed and everyone's kind of milling about drinking and like cleaning up. That was Jimi Hendrix and the band of gypsies. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, so the, uh, Lang, Kornfeld, Roberts and Rosenman, apparently Lang and Kornfeld were like, guys, we need more money, more money, more money. Like a bunch of times. And Roberts and Rosenman actually went back to their families and were like, this is a sure thing. Just give us some more money. And they ended up sinking 1.8 million mm -hmm into the whole thing, which I saw is about $17 million in today's money, which is still not bad considering a, a concert with half a million people. Yeah, but um, but they they were almost almost entirely in the uh, red for that. Like they made basically no money whatsoever. They just lost $1.8 million. And they owed it to um, Roberts and Rosamond and their families. And apparently Lang and Kornfeld finally paid off the debt in the early 80s. And it was largely because of the, the documentary uh, movie and the mm -hmm. album that, that was released. Yeah, the documentary made a lot of money, like $30 million plus. And I think that doesn't even count, you know, home video and, and streaming releases and stuff like that since. But um, like I said, Michael Wadley won the Academy Award for that. And uh, a very young uh, Marty Scorsese was, I think, one of seven editors uh, and I think he was there shooting as well, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Um, and his legendary uh, film editor, Thomas Schoenmacher, 
or is it, I don't know if it's Schoonmacher or Schoonmacher. Both. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of the all-time great film editors. She was one of them uh, as well. And that movie boosted a lot of careers uh, for people that ended up, and I think uh, ended up in the film. And I think a lot of people who didn't sign over their rights or uh, refused to have their footage used probably ended up regretting that. Yep. And there's nothing sweeter than thinking of Neil Young regretting one of his surly decisions, you know? No, I love Neil Young and his surliness. So um, one thing that that, uh, came out of Woodstock was that it became a bit of a brand as seen in like some revivals that were, were made um, yeah. or attempts. I think there was Woodstock 94. There's definitely Woodstock 99. And then there was going to be a Woodstock 50 in 2019, but it got scuttled. Right. Because of the disaster of the last Woodstock, I think. Yes. But there's one thing I want to say. We talked a lot about people pitching in, volunteering, all that stuff. On Monday morning after Jimi Hendrix um, finished playing, Almost everybody left, but about 8,000 participants, fans, um, people who came to, to Woodstock, they stayed behind to help clean up. And this place was trashed oh, yeah. when they started. And apparently they did such a good job that archaeologists who excavate the site are routinely frustrated at finding basically nothing oh, because really? the 8,000 volunteers <laughs> who stayed behind to clean up did such a good job at it. That's pretty great. Uh, you know, no disasters. I think there were two deaths and, um, it it seems like neither one were because of the thing. I think the one uh, reported overdose was later found or believed not to be an overdose and was a heart thing. Yeah. The other Uh, one was very sad. Well, yeah, that was a, a, a straight up tragedy. The kid was asleep, asleep in the field and got run over by a tractor. Yeah, Raymond Mizak. There was no alcohol or drugs found in his yeah. his system either. He was there with his older sister, who probably still feels guilty about it. Uh, the other guy who died was Richard Byler, and it's like, man, that's that's a real bummer. Still not bad for half a million people. And I saw it compared to um, uh, Buffalo, New York, which at the time had a, a population of about the same as the number of people who came to the Woodstock Festival. And over that same weekend, that same period of time, Buffalo, New York, uh, registered forty deaths. Yeah. There are only two at Woodstock. And I can tell you, Buffalo, New York wasn't entirely on acid over that weekend either. <laughs> well, but there were a lot of olds, if you factor in age. Sure. That's true. Wait. You oh, know. yeah. That skews it the other way. Still. I know. It's a it's good It's a stat. wash. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was always the rumors of the Woodstock baby, too. Um, uh, and, in fact, at one point in my life, I thought that would have been a fun uh, movie to write, and I think I worked on it for a little while. Someone that finds out that they were the Woodstock baby, <laughs> uh, but there was not a baby born, you know, in the crowd at Woodstock, like the legend has it. Uh, I think someone was airlifted and had a baby, and then one was in a car, maybe. Yes, on the way there. Yeah. So no, no true Woodstock baby, but that so, s- still would be a good movie, I think. So what? Um, what did the protagonist in your script feel like was was there like they had problems with being the Woodstock baby or well yeah I mean I think the obvious thing to do was was make them like uh like Alex a, P. A, Keaton type yeah an Alex P. Keaton type and then what he turns into like a uh they Martin find, Mole at the yeah, end they, they find free love in the end of course you could yeah. write that thing it writes itself Martin Mole's the quintessential hippie <laughs> that's right as was Max Yasger um which is not true. He did not get flipped movie style into being a hippie. 
but he did get <laughs> sued by his neighbor, at least one neighbor. I think the organizers and the guys who funded the thing ended up suing one another. There were various lawsuits over the years, but uh, Max Yasker ended up uh, selling his farm, uh, moving to Florida, and died there like a year after he moved. Oh. Um, but he he addressed the crowd at one point, and it's really a really great clip. This kind of uh, conservative farm guy got up in front of 400,000 people plus and said, Wait, wait, can you do it as Eugene Levy? <laughs> no. Uh, but he said, you know, he said, I'm not used to addressing 20 people, much less this many. Uh, and it's about a minute and a half. But the one takeaway is he said, uh, I think you people have proven something to the world. The important thing that you prove proven to the world is that a half a million kids can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I, God bless you for it. Very nice. Pretty good stuff. And happy trails to you. He said, I hear not one fight broke out. <laughs> it's and the chipmunk's fact. name is, is just a nickname. <laughs> Look, I'm just glad we, get, we didn't get into another argument like we did in the, uh, what was the episode we did? We are like. Oh, I don't know. Recently? Yeah. Yeah. Remember I was like saying something and you're like, yes, I'm saying the same thing. And Oh, oh. Yeah. What was it? That? that was really recently. That oh. may not even be released yet. No, I don't think it has. Okay. That was a fun one. <laughs> All right. Well, you got anything else about Woodstock, man? I got nothing else. Good one. I mean, it's uh, the briefest of overviews for such a big topic, but I think I think it was pretty good. Agreed. Uh, since Chuck thinks this episode was pretty good, everybody, that means, of course, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this was just something I thought was great. Uh, hey, Josh and Chuck, I recently introduced stuff you should know to my seven-year-old son, John. Mm -hmm. uh, he loves you guys, has even adopted some of your phrases. Uh -huh. regularly telling me not to yuck his yum. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago, during some of your uh, somewhat off-topic banter, he asked me if you guys were married. <laughs> and I said, no, you know, they talk about their wives all the time. And he paused and looked confused. And he said, no, I meant to each other. <laughs> and he said, I laughed and said no. And the next morning, while listening to the show, he said, Daddy, are you sure those guys aren't married? <laughs> and he is convinced that because you guys get along so well, mm -hmm. you must be married to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, that means Tom and his wife must have a good marriage. Sure. Um, now he asks me that every time we listen, which is funny. Uh, so keep, uh, keep up the good work. We love the content of the show and your on-air chemistry, even if you aren't married to each other. Uh, and that is Tom uh, from Baltimore and his seven-year-old son, John. So, uh, hey, John, we're not married. <laughs> hey, John. But, uh, if, if I were gay, you could do a lot worse. Oh, thanks, Josh man. Yeah. And I, I would I so often think about having your beard rub against my chin once in a while. <laughs> You're like, I prefer my guys a little more fit. but uh. <laughs> <laughs> No, I like something to really kind of grab onto when I'm hugging and kissing. Oh, you know? all right. Well, we could have a good time then. <laughs> hey, John, thank you for creating this weird uh, conversation. <laughs> But thank you for writing in. That was one of the most adorable listener mails I've heard in recent memory. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to be like John and Tom, you said too, right? Yep. And write in to us, uh, you can do it via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey. 
Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. 